This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. All right, welcome back to the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy podcast. I'm Ben Jacob, joined as always by my co-hosts, Brian Schrader and Carl Jorn. Guys, how are you this afternoon? Howdy, Ben. Hi, Ben. So it is December 3rd, 2020, and our guest today is research scientist Charlie Zilla out of the Windfall, Indiana breeding location. How are you today, Charlie? Pretty good. I'm doing real good, Ben. Good. Charlie, to start with, can um, can you just give us a little bit of your background? Um, tell us the Charlie Zilla story. And... <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, so I am actually, so as, as you said, I'm currently located at our Windfall, Indiana Research Center. Uh, I have been, I'm actually born and raised Indiana native. So originally grew up on a corn and soybean farm. Um, my dad used to farm, oh, pretty close to Lake Michigan. Um near just south of Michigan City. If any of you know where Purdue North Central is, my family farm was just a few minutes from, from PNC up there. Went to Purdue for undergrad, studied studied plant breeding as an undergrad, um, actually worked with Herbome in, in wheat breeding as an undergrad on some projects there. And then uh, when, when I went to graduate school, my wife and I moved out to Raleigh, North Carolina for five years, and I studied corn breeding, actually, for both my master's and my PhD out there. Um, was there about five years or so, and then in 2013, got my first job offer there at the end of the year, and I defended my dissertation, and then we moved back to, back to Indiana in December of 13, when I started at, at Windfall as a research scientist for DuPont Pioneer at the time in 2014. So been here ever since, about seven years. Um, pretty exciting thing too is really when I walked in, if, if any of you are familiar with Windfall's history, it's, it's, a, it's an old station. It's been around, you know, 30 plus years as, as corn and wheat breeding, but had actually never had soybean breeding. Um, although Pioneer had had breeding efforts in our neighboring states, um, you know, Champaign, Illinois, Napoleon, Ohio of note, there really had never been any actual breeding effort that was run in the state of Indiana for Pioneer. And so that was a brand new program that was added in 14 that I started and really built that from the ground up, which was was pretty exciting for me as a, as a young scientist, because really for most of us coming out of graduate school, you're walking into established programs and established jobs. So to have something where you can actually build a breeding program the way you want to build it from the ground up, that was that's a pretty rare opportunity as far as as far as science positions goes in, in today's ag economy. So that was that was very exciting. Yeah, that's a good point um and if i'm if i'm not mistaken the overall soybean breeding footprint in indiana has increased quite a bit since then as well um adding a, an additional breeding program in southern indiana um so if you can give us an overview of, of what the what the footprint at a high level looks like in indiana i mean how big of a program are you running and how what maturities do we do we cover in state with breeding efforts Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe just to give you some context then. So before I walked into my current role in 2014, it was pretty token effort would be the word I'd use to describe it. Um, I've already mentioned our neighbors. So the, the closest programs would be Napoleon, Ohio, which is kind of outside Toledo, and then Champaign, Illinois to the west. And each one of those programs had maybe two testing locations within the state of Indiana, um, you know, really right inside the borders from Illinois and Ohio. And then down there by, by Evansville um, in Southern Indiana, we had a program outside of St. Louis. Um, Mascuda was the original location that did some testing in Southwest 
in Indiana, but there really wasn't much. So when I came in, that was part of that was part of what my role was, wasn't just breeding the building wasn't just building the breeding program, but also trying to increase what our testing footprint was for research in Indiana, you know, beyond what we were doing for impact testing. Um, so first year, I, I think we added, um, I think the second year I was here, we added two new locations and then that's just grown, you know, hand over fist year since. So a bean breeding program is pretty small compared to some of our corn breeding programs. Um, but right now we run typically seven to eight locations year to year out of windfall. Um, and my responsibility really is, is, is all of group three. So really a three E to three L. So three O to three nine is what I focus on right now, as far as what I breed testing. Um, we go a little bit beyond that. So testing, we can do anywhere from a mid two to even an early four. Now some, some locations we have South of Indianapolis and the, the Johnson County, Shelby County areas. Um, and then to your point then, so when we went through that merger um, with Dow AgroSciences a few years ago, there was some shuffling on the research programs. Um, that Mascuta station that I mentioned we used to have, that actually, that program moved to our existing station that we have outside Evansville, um, which had always been a corn breeding station. And so that program, who's ran by Aaron Hoskins, um, he's also one of our evaluation zone leads, so one of our lead scientists. Um, they moved him there a couple years ago, and that program has moved into southern Indiana, um, increased the testing network down there, and then also, as a result, that program has shifted a little bit in maturity. So that southern Illinois, when they were at Mascuta, it really group four was the main wheelhouse, but I know Aaron has really, he's dipped more and more into 3L um, now that he's at, at our Evansville location. So historically, um, it, it kind of goes without saying that if you're familiar with Pioneer Performance, um, 3L has, it's unfortunately kind of been a gap um, for our breeding programs. And that was part of the reason why Windfall was added is that, you know, when we talk call it three, five to three, nine soybeans. Um, that's really kind of the bread and butter of, of a program that's located, you know, that close to Indianapolis, like windfall is. Um, and so that's, that's really what my focus is really driven towards, even though we can test group twos, we have plenty of other breeding programs in the country that can handle group two just fine. But windfall is kind of unique that we're kind of the heavy hitter right now for, for late group three products. Um, and then also, again, that's, that's part of the reason why Evansville has moved a little bit earlier as well as to kind of attack three L from the other side, other side of the maturity zone as well so we'll give you we'll give you an opportunity to brag on yourself here charlie <laughs> having having a young breeding program and identifying that that late group three mid to late group three as a as a historic performance gap for us you've you've contributed rather substantially to <laughs> to performance in indiana here this year um you want to touch on that yeah, sure. So it, it it goes without saying that it does take a while when you're starting from scratch to build out a pipeline. Um, you know, if you're not familiar with how a breeding program runs, it, it takes years of commercial development to, to release a product. So when I walked in in 2014, um, we didn't have anything in our experimental pipeline. And the experimental pipeline can take five, six, sometimes seven years to produce a product. Um, so crosses were already initiated. So I had populations to work with in 14 when I started. But that was it. So basically it was, you know, unfinished varieties that it was their very first year of testing. And they were looking at, you know, five, six more years of testing before we got a product out of that. So 
I'm really excited to say though. So I, I think I said, I've, I've been on the job seven years now. Um, last year was when we finally hit that milestone of, we had our first commercial releases at a windfall. Um, there actually were three of them. Um, two of them I would call commercially relevant to Indiana though. Um, so the first one you probably haven't heard of, there's a product that's called P35A70X. Um, that was kind of more of a niche product that got picked up in Nebraska and Pennsylvania. But more near and dear to my heart, though, is probably the, the two that you're more familiar with in Indiana, um, P35A55X and P39A45X. Um, and both those have really been, you know, stepwise improvements, I think, in our, our Roundup Ready to Extend lineup. Really, I think just our lineup in general in late group three. Um, there really isn't anything else in any other trade segment, I think, that compared to performance of those two products this year, um, especially with A55. Um, you know, they had great traits. Were, were fantastic lines all through the research testing progress. Um, and actually kind of the interesting history on those two in particular is that when those came through testing, sometimes breeders, we talk about a process called jumping, where when a product is so good as an experimental variety that we can skip some years of testing to get that to commercialization faster. Um, and so the year of testing that we would call R3, which would be the year before impact testing, those two products actually both skipped that year of testing. So they came to the market one year sooner than other products in the same class would have. So um, really, really attest to how excited we were and how strong those products were in testing to warrant releasing those a year earlier. So, well, I can I can confidently say that the performance in the field has not been a letdown compared to what they they are exactly what we were told they were as they came out of research. Um, so with that, I think we'll pivot just a little bit, and you know, so those those are outstanding extend products, and it's no secret in the industry that that Pioneer is moving to E three. Right. So we have we have a full lineup of E3, but you have to build that back into the into the breeding program. Since soybeans are forward bred, you have to integrate it into the germplasm. Um, can you can you walk us through that process and give us some insight on on what you're seeing as a scientist? Sure. Yeah. So there's this is this is kind of a loaded question, uh, but there's there's a lot of there's a few different ways to think about how we're bringing enlist into pioneer germplasm. Um, so, you know, maybe just to address the elephant in the room here. So, you know, we do have T series enlist products that are on the marketplace um, and it, it shouldn't be any secret that those are not pioneer genetics. Those are provider licensee genetics. Um, they're good products. Um, they've gone through everything. They've gone through the same testing regimen that our extend a series has gone through. Um, you know, so they're going to, you know, dozens of locate as research varieties, they're going through dozens of research locations. And then this year in impact, they would have gone through hundreds of impact locations on top of it. Plus they're getting, they're going through all of our departmental disease screens. Um, so they're going through some pretty precise um, screenings for traits like sudden death, white mold, phytophthora, SCN screens, all those traits that are going to be important to the growers at the end of the day. Um, so all the, even though they're provider genetics, they've gone through that same ringer that all of our, our in-house genetics would go through. Now, clearly we can do better. You know, the most common question I think I've gotten this year is, is when are we going to have E3 in a Pioneer, specifically a Pioneer A-series background? Um, so there's a couple different routes we've gone, we've gone through to get there. Maybe the first place I'll start is, is that, you know, when we had access to that trait, so put it in a historical context here, Enlist E3 came from the merger of DuPont Pioneer and Dow AgroSciences back in 2017 which is when that merger started. And so I, I can honestly tell you that the day the ink was dry, when we closed on that merger in soybean breeding, we started making crosses between 
pioneer products and enlist donors from Dow AgroScience to be able to, to get that trade integrated as fast as we can. Now, at the time, um, we were kind of limited for a number of reasons on what we could cross to. Um, so there's there will be kind of a few different waves of classes that you'll see with um, Pioneer Genetics with the Enlist trait coming out the next few years. Maybe the best thing I can compare to is that we're, we're, we'll start with what will be an impact next year. So next year, you'll see an impact testing the very first Pioneer Genetics with E3 uh, R4 varieties. In, in impact testing next year. And what those things are is they are going to be a little bit older genetics. They would represented what we would have had to work with, you know, three years ago in 2017. But those genetics, they're going to be really similar genetics to what made up earlier first few classes of Extend A series. Um, so, you know, the, the very first, when we look back, what made up the first couple of years of Extend A series in 2016, 2017, those were products that they represented kind of the, the creme de la creme of what glyphosate tolerant varieties we had in the lineup at the time. So those last couple of years of, you know, what we had the most advanced varieties that were in a Roundup Ready One background, essentially. And so those are the types of things that we we converted first um, that were, that was kind of low hanging fruit that we, we knew what we were getting into. We knew the performance of those and, you know, we knew they made good extend conversions. And from what we know about the Enlist trait in general, um, you know, we've seen basically parity performance um, when we swap the extend and Enlist E3 trait packages, which is really good from a breeding standpoint that means that there shouldn't be too many curveballs thrown at us as we as we switch from extend to enlist now since then clearly you know we we don't want to keep converting three-year-old genetics with enlist because then we're just going to fall behind on genetic gain in general um, we want to convert you know the, the 35 a55s and the 39 a45s are the things that we really want to put enlist e3 into and so the way that process looks at um, is basically what has happened since 2017. So we've gone through 17, 18, 19, 20. You've gone through four research classes now effectively in the background here that as products are a year out from impact. So if impact testing is R4, we would call the year before impact R3. As products enter R3 testing for research, those products also go into our TI or our trade integration pipeline. So anything that is a, so as an example of anything that will be a, two, a 2021 R3 entry next year, so you know, a potential 2022 R4 impact entry, that thing is entering TI as, as an endless conversion across the board. Um, so all of our best genetics that we're working in our extend background now, that's represented the pioneer pool for four or five years now, Everything that's R3 and R4 level that we have in research is being converted to Enlist E3 TI. Now, TI takes about two years, give or take, um, to, to, to come up with a finished variety. Um, so this is, you know, making crosses in our winter nurseries in Puerto Rico. Um, so when a variety enters TI testing, we won't get an E3, you know, what we would call a finished conversion out of that you know, two summers from now is what that process looks like. And that's just, that's just to get the conversion finished. Um, so when it comes out, even though, you know, we have a lot of information about that, what we would call the recurrent parent. So that extend parent that we've converted to enlist E3, we still need to test that in research to make sure, you know, we haven't 
crossed some wires or we've lost some performance on a key trade or something like that. Because even though we try to get a conversion to be as, you know, as close to that recurrent parent as we possibly can, things happen where, you know, maybe you end up with a little worse lodging or a little worse sudden death or, you know, heaven forbid performance is off a little bit, which we try to avoid that, but it happens. That's just kind of the nature of the beating beast, beating, breeding beast. Um, <laughs> and so once once we have that finished conversion, um, it goes into a, it goes into a research test um, effectively as an R three for a summer um, on a limited R three basis, um, and then and then once that would go through that, then you're you're a full R four impact entry. So from you know when we start converting of a, a variety with E three, you're basically talking you know four years until that thing is an advanceable impact entry, if that makes sense. Um, so, so maybe to bring that back to present day then, so just to look at, you know, what's an impact testing next year. So next year's first pioneer E3 impact class, those represented those crosses that were initiated in, in fall of 2017, spring of 2018. So that's, that's effectively your four years from initial cross to you have an impact entry that can potentially become a pioneer product. So, you know, 2017 to 2021. So a product so like Charlie, just for yeah. context, for some, yeah, yeah, go. That's exactly you were reading my mind. So for context, <laughs> that would be like a thirty-one A22s, you know, something that was commercialized Correct. in twenty seventeen. And talk about, you know, just that that is a product that still today, um, when visiting with growers, they say, "Heck, I would plant a, the majority of my acres to that uh, variety if you let me." And that's the beautiful thing about the breeding efforts that you all have put forth at Windfall and the other breeding stations is that we just keep improving, you know, with respect to genetic gain, raising the bar on other agronomic traits. And like you said, the most critical one, performance and, uh, you know, transitioning folks out of those genetics. Um, at times it can be kind of hard, but knowing that you've got such great products like a 31A22 that we've crossed and now that we're bringing that forward potentially as an enlist variety representing that commercial year, that is something to be awfully excited about for growers in the field. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So as a, just as, as a quick summary on that, and that's great information, Charlie, um, you know, where we are today, we have, we have E3 varieties that the performance is good. The agronomics are good, um, but they are not necessarily our, our elite A-series genetics. And the process going on in the breeding organization was initiated four years ago to fill up this pipeline um, to where we're moving, we're moving E3 into, into Pioneer's elite genetics to deliver in the field as quick as we can. Is that a fair summary? I think you got it, Ben. That's perfect. So, so Charlie, one thing that kind of struck a chord with me is um, you're talking about these T-series varieties that we brought forth. And mm -hmm. what, what I've been sharing with growers is that you've got this big pool of products that, you know, Pioneer's been able to select from from these providers and just as you pointed out, we're taking them and we're moving them through this fine mesh screen that we go through with every single one of our own Pioneer varieties. So is it fair to say that what we get told when we bring on a line from some provider company when we're licensing those genetics, that maybe what we suss out as we're kind of filtering things through our fine mesh screens, we're, we're coming up with a lot of key learnings about those individual varieties? 
I, I think so. Yeah. And I, I, you kind of hit your nail on the head there too, is that what we would receive from our providers, um, you know, what your, what your customers would see in the field is only a very small fraction of what research would evaluate. So, you know, whatever our provider source may be for enlist genetics, um, you know, it's, it's a fairly significant pile we've sorted through the last few years, and it's only a handful that actually are going to make that final cut going there. Um, but that said, since research, since we do get to look at a fairly large class, I mean, we can see, we start to notice some trends across some of those products. Um, so even though, you know, we, we still have a minimum threshold cutoff for traits, for example, you know, so we, we need good agronomics, we need, you know, acceptable sudden death tolerance, we need acceptable white mold tolerance. We'll take the things that are good, um, you know, or maybe let's, let's, let's say is, you know, would meet some of those minimum thresholds, but, you know, certainly in research, part of the reason we might want to move as quickly as we can into our elite genetics is that we know with our elite genetics, we can do a whole lot better for a lot of those traits. Um, you know, I think if you look at the product catalog for a trait like sudden death, for example, you know, we'll sell things. There's a minimum threshold we need to meet for those. But I think when you look at, you know, the mean of the A series class as a whole, it's far and away blows away anything. I think that is currently probably in a T a T series enlist bag. Um, and this year, you know, maybe to bring it home for, you know, making, you know, further selling that case for why we want to move in our pioneer genetics. So as I said, we're going to have pioneer genetics within list E3 and impact testing next year. Um, so those things were research our threes this year to use the research term um, this year would have been the first year we would have had those conversions going head to head against provider material um, from the, those provider classes, you know, analogous to what we've gotten the last few years from our providers. And I can tell you that advancement, let's call it advancement success rate of how often one of those provider lines advanced versus a comparable pioneer line, almost always nine out of 10 times those pioneer lines beat those provider lines going forward. So I think when you look at what's going to be, you know, research R4 entries next year, a very, very, very small portion of that class will still be provider genetics versus what is actually going to be, you know, pioneer, um, pioneer quality genetics. So, I mean, you, you touched on it. One of the, one of the strengths of the organization as I see it, and it, it certainly gives me confidence as we get, as you all bring us new products, um, and even these T-series is just how well characterized they are um, for all of those important agronomic traits. Um, so I know, I know there's a lot of technology involved in, in screening for those traits and different processes used. Can, can you talk us through um, some disease screening for things like white mold, sudden death, or phytophthora, or down here, brown, brown stem rot, and anything like that, just, just how that process works and how you're able to characterize things so well? Yeah, sure. So there's, I mean, I could probably write a dissertation for you on this, especially depending what trait we're talking about. Um, but yeah, in in general, so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll divide this kind of into two buckets. Um, so when you look at disease traits, so just kind of basic genetics here. So going back to breeding 101, there's what we would call qualitative traits and what we call quantitative traits. So qualitative traits, those are going to be disease traits where there's just maybe one or even two major genes that control resistance to the pathogen. So just one genetic marker, you know, one gene, you either have it or you don't. Um, so traits like von Steinmott, like you mentioned, um, and Phytophthora major genes, those are things that operate on a, a more qualitative basis. And so with those type of things, we have molecular markers that do a really good job of screening those traits out. Um, so those are actually things that very, very early in the breeding process, we can, we would say, fix them 
Um, you know, so fix them to be true breeding resistant in our breeding populations. We can tackle those things with a major marker earlier on and then really don't even have to worry about it, you know, later on in the breeding process. So something like brown stem rot, there's one major gene that controls that that's, you know, known to the public literature. It's not anything that's proprietary to Pioneer. Um, you know, our markers may be proprietary that we use, um, but those things we can we can enrich those, fix them, and basically, as long as you have that molecular marker, you don't even really need to screen for it later on because it's a hundred percent relationship between the presence of that marker and having resistant tolerance. Now, typically, we won't rely on that all the way through the process, so there will be one confirmation screaming screening uh, by the by the time closer to the end of closer to when that thing would become a commercial product. Um, so I'll give you a specific example, something like cis nematode resistance. So when we want to screen 788 resistance or peaking resistance, there's a number of markers that we use to fix those alleles early on. So, you know, we know we've got peaking resistance in this experimental variety. We know we have 788 resistance in this variety, but when we get, you know, basically that R3, R4 level of testing, those things will go through an actual, you know, nematode screen in a greenhouse in Johnston to just to be 100% sure that, hey, you know, the markers have told us all along this breeding process, we have peaking resistance, but does it actually hold up? Did we get resistance when we actually challenge this with, you know, race one nematodes? So that's how qualitative works. Um, those, those, those traits are actually probably the more straightforward ones to work with um, because, you know, a marker resource, really that, that's a function of either chip a seed in Puerto Rico or you punch a leaf in North America and you run a DNA assay on it and then, you know, you've got it and then you don't really have to worry about that from a breeding standpoint the rest of the process. Where it gets trickier is when we talk about quantitative traits. So, uh, you know, from a, a genetic standpoint, a quantitative trait is any trait that is controlled by, you know, many, many, many genes in the genome that many of them may not even be characterized. You don't really have a good marker to tag them, and it takes the sum of a whole bunch of effects to produce a phenotype. Um, so, uh, you know, just to give you a, a real-life example, just so, you know, you can wrap your head around this, is look at height in people. Um, there isn't, there isn't, you know, one gene you can point to it, say, if you got this gene, everybody's tall. And if you got this other gene, everybody else is short. Um, you know, when you look at the human population, clearly there's all types of variation for how tall you can be um, in a population. And the reason that is, is that there's, you know, there's dozens of possible genes that controls height in human beings. And so when you look at plants, there's, there's a number of traits that that, that that's analogous to as well. And a number of our important disease traits operate that way. So some big ones would be like sudden death syndrome or white mold. Um, there's, there's some markers we have for them, but you know, when you have the presence of the marker, maybe it only changes that trait score, you know, a quarter of a score, which is fairly insignificant when you talk about a breeding process. So you need seven, eight, nine, ten markers that each have, you know, a quarter score effect each if you're going to try to make, you know, a three score jump and a sudden death score, for example. So the way those work is, you know, in addition to we have some prediction models earlier on where we we run genome wide markers and we can try to, you know, make incremental improvements to those traits earlier on. But really for those type of traits, we have to do a lot of precise screening at several generations um, to, you know, start to weed out those things that are towards the bottom of that bucket. Those things that are going to be worse for sudden death and making sure we're keeping those things that are better for sudden death going on. Um, so maybe to keep keep on this example, using sudden death as an example. So when we look at how those nurseries are structured is, is we have to we have to grow those things in the field and challenge them with sudden death and figure out what's good and what's bad. 
and traits like that, you know, it's not just one nursery. Uh, Pioneer, we use multiple locations of data to, to run these type of screens. Um, and when you talk about something like sudden death or something like white mold, there's, there's an environmental component to it. You know, how tolerance works in Indiana may be different from how tolerance works in Missouri, for example, for sudden death. And so what we do is, uh, to use the example, keep using the example sudden death, you know, there's, I believe we, as it sits today, we have four locations in North America that run sudden death screens. So, you know, when a variety hits that R3 stage, so a year out from, from impact testing, it'll be grown in multiple reps at each one of those four locations in North America. So basically you're talking about, there's a large screening nursery in Illinois, there's one in Iowa, um, there's one in Southern Indiana, at your Evansville station right now. Um, and I believe there's one out in Lawrence, Kansas. Um, so you're, you're sampling basically that core geography where you could potentially get sudden death at and, and covering you know all group two and group three RMs. And so those things will go through basically any product. It, it, it'll, it has to, will generate the sudden death score from those, you know, four or five locations of data. And then it's not just this year. So, I mean, that's going to be a multi-year data set. So, you know, by the time something hits impact, it's gone through four to five nursery screens for the last two to three years um, to really generate that, that sudden death score. So even though there's a lot more, let's call it guesswork in quantitative traits compared to qualitative traits, with the amount of screening that we do in Pioneer for our products, you know, we are very, very, very certain we've got some pretty bulletproof scores on those products by the time they finally make it into a grower's bag. Charlie, there were a couple things that you touched on there that resonated with me. So you talk about, you know, those four screening locations across, you know, the soybean belt, if you will, and putting all that material through with multiple replications and, and you know, actually truing up what, what we would believe or what we predict a score to be. So that's something that you can get through a large breeding organization, right? Correct. But, but the other touch that I think is really interesting is that, you've also got that local flavor because you're actually validating and verifying that what one's predicting for a certain qualitative or quantitative trait, that that's actually what's showing up in a field. And we're screening that on a local basis. Can you kind of touch on how that might be different from uh, other breeding programs uh, that you're aware of in the industry? Yeah, certainly. And it's, I'll give you a couple anecdotes here too, but I I think that is one thing that separates Pioneer from some of our larger competitors um, is that even though we do a lot of, you know, cutting edge prediction-based breeding earlier on where we're, you know, we're generating kind of a virtual prediction on product performance. So that actually screening it, we still, at the end of the day, you know, we, we don't, we don't sell a prediction, we sell real product performance. And so to do that, you still need local testing to characterize those, those products. And so we use, you know, prediction-based breeding really to sort through a fairly large possible product pile earlier on. Um, but as we get closer to years of commercial release, we do more and more local testing, you know? So there's, I, right now, I, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but it's something like we have a dozen and a half research programs across all North America. Um, so that's anywhere from the coast still playing in North Carolina all the way up through um, I think Alberta or Alberta or Manitoba, Canada now at this point. Um, and that, that represents, you know, a lot of footprint, but it also represents a lot of talent at those stations too. So I'm one of, you know, a dozen, I think there's 14 or 15 breeders now um, that are represented at those locations in North America. 
And all of us are located at those local stations, you know, so clearly, you know, here on this call, you know, I really represent kind of that local science expert for the state of Indiana um, in, in this part of the Corn Belt. And so that gives me a lot of product knowledge on, you know, not just group three, but specifically what group three products work here in Indiana. And it gives me a lot of leverage to, you know, how I need to tweak the breeding program to best meet the needs of, of growers here in Indiana and understand, you know, what some of the local challenges are that, that growers in Indiana may face. I think when you look at how some other companies have pivoted the last few years, um, there's one organization out of St. Louis that I could probably pick on. Um, there's been, there's been a trend for that organization and maybe some other organizations to really go maybe a little bit more whole hog into this, this prediction-based breeding, which is certainly fine. There's a lot of power into it. Um, but unfortunately, when you look at a lot of their research programs, a lot of, you know, I'll use that word talent, a lot of talent has been pulled from the, you know, those local stations and has been pulled to, you know, a headquarters like St. Louis. And so what you really don't have anymore is, is that at an organization like that is you don't have breeders really with local knowledge anymore. Um, you know, you'd have an individual like myself out of St. Louis effectively trying to breed, you know, for maybe the entire Eastern half of the United States, which how am I possibly going to try to cover a footprint that large as, as, as just one person, you know, how, however awesome I think I am, there's only so much I can do at the end of the day. And there's so much I can understand. Um, and so I think that's certainly one thing that I think when you look at, you know, pioneer performance versus something like ASGRO performance is that I think really they've lost a lot of that local touch and local product knowledge that I think you still see well represented in the pioneer breeding programs. I think I'd add too that that information flow goes both ways. Uh, we've been fortunate enough to have you on the podcast this week. Uh, last week we had Reed Rice on two soybean breeders, and Charlie. I mean, we made a phone call or an email to you and to Reed, and we're able to get access to you. If we have a question about a variety as agronomists in the field, either because we've seen something or a customer's reached out to us, we simply make a phone call to you. And, and you know all the agronomists in the state of Indiana, we have a relationship with you. And that's something that some of those other organizations I don't believe have. They don't know who to go to. Uh, you talked about A55s coming out of your program. If I have a question about A55s, that I can call you and I can talk to the person that helped develop that bean and, you know, bring it to fruition. And so that that's a that's a powerful tool that I think sometimes we don't talk about because we all as pioneer employees take it for granted so much. Right. Well, one of my favorite things throughout the whole year is when we go on impact tours with the breeding organization, you know, as agronomists, as the field agronomists, it's that tied to the, to the agencies and to the customer. And then we have that opportunity to interface with folks like Charlie or Reed or Mike Gines on the corn side of things and get an understanding of how these products have performed through their research life cycle. But then as they're about to hit that commercialization stage, of course, you know, we, we did half an episode here on the great job you guys do of characterizing those products, but hearing straight from the horse's mouth, hey, this is what I would expect to see in this environment, or this is how far north I've seen this product perform well, to have that exchange so that we can take that directly to the field, that's invaluable. And you're not going to get that on a conference call with somebody that's sitting, you know, 300 miles away from you. And I think that's really important to point out. 
Yeah. And I, Brian, I really liked your comment too on, you know, that information flow goes, goes both ways. And this is something I always try to say when I'm out on a field tour, whether it's with our sales reps or even, you know, on a customer day with our growers is that, you know, it's not just me downloading information to sales reps or growers, whatever it is. A lot of what influences my breeding program is getting feedback from you guys, from sales reps, even from growers. You know, if I hear enough times, you know, Hey, eight, seven, eighty-eight. SCN resistance really isn't working in my area. I'm seeing a whole ton of race one pressure. If enough people start saying that at once, maybe I'll start pulling levers a little bit differently earlier on in the breeding program to say, Hey, you know, I really need to be working a lot more Peking parents than what I am right now. Um, you know, the wheels of change can take a while. You know, sometimes it, like I said, it takes five to seven years to develop a product. So you might not see that, that response overnight, but certainly know that, you know, as I hear things in the field and, you know, maybe I may think something is more important to breed for than what really matters to the grower. You know, I, I will reassess some of my strategies when I sit down and do selections based on the feedback I'm getting from, from both our customers as well as our sales teams. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Charlie and Brian, everything going, everything going both ways. And it's, it's reassuring as a, you know, as technical support in the field to have, to have that access um, and also have the transparency, just like this conversation today, being able to understand to some degree what the process is and have confidence and, and these products once they come to market and you're repeating, repeatedly going back to SDS is, is really um it's it's really ironic because this year that very clearly in southern indiana could you you could parse out the break and the scores on sds so when they when they make it into a blue bag um those those scores are are right and everything separates out that way so um at this point we've been going for a little bit um brian carl anything that anything that we missed Charlie, you tell me if I've got this wrong, but earlier on you said uh, as soon as the ink was dried on the merger, we were allowed to start working with those donor lines. And so we took our best varieties from 2017 and we started to turn those into enlist varieties. And come next year, we're going to see those in impact this, this planting season. So those that data you were looking at from this harvest that's informing what varieties are going to be an impact next year. You said nine out of 10 times we were uh, doing very well, or we were the obvious advancement choice versus the experimental varieties that we got from other providers. So if I've got that right in four years, uh, working with three, four-year-old genetics, you're able to take our varieties and then 15 years worth of breeding from whoever those other uh, in licensed genetics you were able to make up that time breeding with your hand tied behind your back I mean that just speaks to the power of pioneer soybean breeding and I'm just I'm tickled to think about what these products are going to look like as we're able to continue to breed with both arms I think that's really important for growers to recognize yeah, you kind of, I, I think I've said that directly in some other conversations I've had, but you, you, I'm glad you read between the lines there on, on uh, yeah, that I, I'm pretty pleased that with, you know, several year old genetics out of our own company that we're, we're already beating what is coming through some of our provider options. So that expect that only to get stronger, certainly as we move into more and more elite genetics, you know, things, things like the A55s, um, you know, when we get to, get back to that level here in just a couple more years. It'll be, it'll be a really exciting time, certainly for, for E3 performance for Pioneer. I want to add to that 
too, Charlie, the speed at which you have been able to do that, even in the the last 18 months, the energy and the speed that the breeding machine on the soybean side has accelerated by. I, I don't know that we t- we oftentimes talk in years when we talk about breeding, but the breeding programs that you guys are running and the things that are, you are doing changes practically weekly, but certainly monthly with new technologies that come available uh, in the analysis tools that you have and everything. And I don't want folks to leave with this idea that what you're doing currently is what you did when you started your program four years ago. This is ever evolving. And it's an amazing thing to talk to folks like yourself and just hear the things that have become antiquated just in the last handful of years because of the advancements that you all have been able to make in the technologies that allow you to do your work. Right. No, that's a really good point too. I mean, it it goes without saying that, you know, one of the, I think one of the biggest things about just being a scientist in general, whether it's a plant breeder or, you know, any other scientific discipline is that if, if you're not changing how you operate and adopting the latest techniques, then I, you're doing something wrong as a scientist. So that's, that's exactly nail on the head. Yeah. My, my job today is very, very different than what it was when I, when I walked in the doors at windfall seven years ago. So it's, it's very exciting. And I, I like your comment on it changes weekly. Cause that's, that's how I feel in certain years um, as, as new methodologies and new technologies came out. Um, but yeah, it's I, at the end of the day, it's it's all for the betterment of being a more efficient machine. You know, spending our dollars more wisely, selecting things more precisely, and at the end of the day, trying to do better and better job picking out great products to put in a blue bag. Well, we we certain we certainly appreciate that effort on our end. And this is a recap. You know, we have we have really strong performing T-Series E3 varieties right now that have been screened through what I'm going to say is the most intense screening pro- process um, in the business. And we're, co- we're confident in how those perform. And even more so because they are characterized so well, we're confident that we can place them to perform. Um, but the breeding organization has spooled up to turn, to turn these genetics around and it's going to be it's going to be very quick you're going to see a performance jump uh, multiple performance jumps here here over the next few years that that everybody should be really excited about having having the best the best um, technology the best spray technology the best trait system and the best genetics um, coming to you in a, in a blue bag all right well charlie we appreciate you taking the time to join us um, if anybody if anybody listening to this heard anything that struck a chord and they wanted to get a hold of you directly, is there a way that they could do that? Um, probably. So I'm, I'm not as officially active on social media as I probably should be, but certainly I, I have a corporate email address that I'd be happy to field questions at. Um, so I, that's just charles.zilla at corteva.com is my, my email address. Thank you. Right, Carl, if folks want to get a hold of you, where can they do that at? Follow along at C. Jorn. That'd be on the Twitter, Ben. Mr. Schrader. On Twitter at BK Schrader, S-H-R-A-D-E-R. And if you want to try Instagram, uh, B underscore K underscore Schrader. You can keep up with me on, on the Twitter sphere at D. Ben Jacob or on Facebook at Ben Jacob Agronomy. 
we appreciate you spending your time with us and hopefully hopefully you found some good information today as always we certainly would appreciate feedback so don't hesitate to reach out with any feedback from this episode or others or any topics that you'd be interested in hearing us discuss so thanks again thank you for listening to this episode from the pioneer agronomy team be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.